I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So today, first topic, we're going to dive into uh, my recent interview, uh, actually just this morning, with on Maria Bartiromo's show on Fox Business. And, you know, there's a few topics that we discussed or that I discussed on the show and uh, we're going to check it out and and dive a little bit deeper uh, into a couple of those couple of those topics. Chinese regulators ordering Ant Group to refocus its businesses and comply with regulatory requirements there. The People's Bank of China criticizing the company for its behavior towards competitors and consumers, saying that Ant Group, quote, despised complying with regulations. Regulators last month stopped Ant's $37 billion stock debut in Shanghai and in Hong Kong over regulatory changes. And then just days ago, China announced an anti-monopoly investigation of Alibaba Group, which owns a stake in Ant Group. Joining me now, Applico CEO Alex Mozad. And, and more tough news for, for Jack Ma as he continues to, or I guess his war with the government seems to be escalating on a business perspective. Where do you see it? It's that fateful conference speech that he gave October 25th in Shanghai, which, which really set all these things in motion. He said some not so nice things about the CCP and the financial regulators in China. And boy, uh, I, I, I bet he wish he could take those words back right now. Yeah, well, I mean, what does he do? I mean, does, he needs to figure out how to work with the, the Chinese Communist Party. What can he do to kind of to heal the divides? Because, I mean, a, a, investors around the world, a lot of American investors are invested in these Chinese tech companies. You know, uh, some people could say that's an oxymoron working with the uh, CCP, Dagan. But um, there's a lot of things he has to do behind the scenes, frankly. And that's the problem with, with running a company in a... Uh, totalitarian communist dictatorship is when the government is mad at you, how do you get back in their good graces? When you figure that out, let me know. It's, it's a very difficult, uh, uh, you know, wall to overcome. So let's just dive deeper into this, right? Uh, you saw they were featuring Alibaba's stock price. It's down basically, you know, um, a third since all this started happening in, in the past couple of months here. Uh, so a third of their value, boom, poof, gone, uh, thanks to uh, the Chinese government being annoyed, right? And taking it personally that um, that Jack Ma would, would ever dare to say, I mean, it's not like he came out and called these people idiots uh, and buffoons and anything near the level of what you have going on in, in the U.S. public discourse between um, you know, uh, either either uh, CEOs, titans of industry, and and political conjecture or media uh, opining on politics. Obviously, so, I mean, this is nothing near the the type of discourse that exists in the United States. It's not even close. Okay, what this guy said, he did criticize them and say that they're overly regulated. And that you know that that they are um, impeding growth in the financial services sector, and that's disadvantaging people in China. And I mean, there's truth to that. They didn't take it very kindly, though. You know, they felt like it was a slap in the face. They being the CCP and the financial regulators. So they've wiped a third of this guy's company off the map. Alibaba, okay, Alibaba, Ant 
was supposed to IPO. That IPO is gone. That's kaput. That's who knows if that's ever coming back. We'll see. This is what happens when when you allow yourself to be put under the thumb of a totalitarian regime, like I was talking about on that show. But let's let's go deeper here. There's actually more to this. You know, there's more examples going on right now, like this article. China is suffering the worst blackouts in a decade after banning Australian coal. This is from the Japanese newspaper, the Nikkei. Power rationing in China sends chills through the economy. Just weeks after banning Australian coal imports, which they chose to do, the CCP voluntarily chose to ban the coal from Australia. So much so that they are now facing a nationwide power crisis. Amid large-scale outages, Beijing is resorting to electricity rationing for households and businesses not seen in years. China suffers the worst power blackouts in a decade, South China Morning Post, the, you know, the mouthpiece of the CCP. Provinces across China are struggling with blackouts as authorities use restrictions to curb energy use and manage supply. The power crisis is threatening to throw a wrench into Beijing's plans to rapidly revive the world's second largest economy, says the Nikkei. The Chinese power sector is heavily dependent on coal imports from Australia. In 2019, 60% of China's thermal coal imports came from Australia. <laughs> coal provides up to 70% of China's energy needs. Well, I thought I thought China was um using clean energy. I thought I thought they were leading the world in in clean energy. I thought they are the beacon of uh, of clean energy, right? Oh. Oh, but 70% of their stuff is from coal. Oh. Hmm, interesting. China is also the world's biggest polluter, emitting more carbon dioxide than the United States and the EU combined. Surprise, surprise. From the Australian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, it says that the streetlights and billboards are being turned off in China's major cities. Factories are being shut down or forced into reduced shifts. Office lighting and lifts have had their power cut off. Consumers have been told not to use electric stoves and to turn off their heating until the temperature falls below 3 degrees Celsius. Okay, below 3 degrees Celsius. That's like in the, you know, high 30s Fahrenheit. Uh, I mean, what? Why is China banning coal from Australia? Well, that's because the Australians have said some, guess what? Not so nice things about China. <laughs> or, or no, you know what? Just the truth. The virus came from China. In April, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, demanded an independent assessment of how this all occurred so we can learn the lessons and prevent it from happening again. The guy said, we need to have an independent assessment of what went happened here. And that was just, man, Scott, you, why would you ever make such a ridiculous demand? Beijing responded by threatening a boycott of Australian goods and followed up by slapping punitive tariffs on key imports from the country. You can't make this stuff up. The guy said, hey, there's this thing called coronavirus, which is from China, and it'd be great to have an independent commission look at this. China says, how dare you treat us with such disrespect? Um, we are going to, you know, cut off our own nose in spite of you because we're not going to allow this to happen to our national honor. 
it is so childish, this kind of activity. And it just goes to show you uh, the people calling the shots are, you know, somewhere up, up inside the CCP. You know, you, the lady from Fox is asking me, what does Jack Ma do to fix this? No one knows, right? What kind of rational thinkers are in there saying, yeah, you know what? Let's have nationwide blackouts. Let's have our people um, not turn on the heat unless they have, unless it's less than three degrees Celsius in their house. And you know, but we're going to do this to, to teach Australia a lesson. That seems like a great idea. Let's, let's actually put our economic rebound you know, in jeopardy because we need to show Australia a lesson, right? Wonderful. Really geniuses over there. This is what happens when you allow yourself to have, you know, or you allow China to have too much leverage on you, whether that's a business, Alibaba, I mean, not much they can do about it. It's a Chinese company. We're going to get to Zoom in a second. Just you wait. Whether it's a country, Australia, and every other country in the world better wake up. And I think some are starting to wake up about what is really going on and what has been going on for the past 20 plus years. China's not changing. Maybe you could have held on to that hope 10 or 15 years ago. That ship has come and gone. That's water way far under the bridge. It's time to recognize China's not changing. This is childish behavior, just like China has acted like a child in their handling of the COVID crisis, right? How many reported cases are in China? Oh, less than 90,000 reported cases in China still to this date. I mean, are you kidding me? There's no transparency. They've kicked out all of the American journalists. They did that months ago, right at the beginning of 2020, before, before this hit and actually came out. You can't believe anything coming out of there. You can't believe what they're reporting on COVID, what their GDP numbers are. You can't believe any of it. There is no transparency. And the next example is Zoom. We've talked a lot about on the show how Zoom is compromised. One of the articles that we were covering, you know, when we were going over Zoom, it was um, like American head Chinese body or Chinese body American head, whatever it is, it's in conflict with itself. It doesn't work. All of Zoom's uh, product and engineering resources in China, the guy who founded it, he's an American citizen who was born in China. All of his key leadership, his co-founder, they're all Chinese. And, and the, whole, the whole premise of the business when they were raising money from VCs was, hey, we have really cheap engineering labor. It's all in China. That was their pitch to VCs, right? Hey, look at, look at our OPEX. It's really low. All the engineers are in China. And now remember, because we were covering this months ago, how Zoom is not secure. Why would they be routing calls through Chinese servers? It just didn't make any sense. Then the news came out that one of the executives who now has been, obviously, you know, from Zoom's PR team, this executive is now just some lowly member of, of X member of the Zoom team, right? Obviously, that this executive, Zoom executive, uh, was actively banning users from Zoom because they were, you know, posting information. These were like Chinese nationals that maybe had left China and you know, we're, we're posting um, or running, uh, running Zoom calls with people uh, counter to what the CCP wanted, right? I think it might have been related to the Tiananmen Square massacre and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, 
we covered this. We covered this. My Zoom clip on TikTok. Why Zoom can't be trusted? It's a Chinese product with an American rapper around it. Zoom. They kicked off anti-Chinese Communist Party individuals. The Chinese government said, I want you to kick these users off of Zoom and I want you to cancel these calls. And so Zoom did it. They kicked these people off and it blew up. Chinese government wanted this done and it got done. Did they go to the CEO, Eric, and say, Eric, take this stuff down? No, they didn't have to. You want to know why? Because there's 700 product and engineering people in China. You have a business built in China. The product was built in China. Now you're going to say, oh, well, we're going to put rules and safeguards into place. It's just not possible. They'll find a way to go around the rule or ask a friend, or I've got this Chinese governor that wants this thing done. Now, those rules, those walls, they go away real fast. How can you actually now either split apart the company or move all of this outside of China? You got to do it. Nailed that one. You say so myself. Then what happened was that TikTok video, you know, got like over 10,000 views. No big deal. It's a TikTok video. That TikTok video started to get attacked by the 50 Cent Army. This was actually our first foray into encountering these Chinese bots, but they're humans. It's a Literally an army of humans. So we start to get attacked by these Chinese bots saying, oh, Alex, you're fake news. You're lying, Alex. You know, look at him. He touches his hair. He's lying. Honestly, that, well, those were the comments. And these are all, you know, uh, goose egg accounts, right? Like um, they, have, they might have a profile photo or they have just like an avatar. Uh, we saw the same profile with the same kind of like pattern of profile photo. They all post broken English, but like someone's watching the video for me to touch my hair. Someone's watching the video. It's not just a purely automated. These are, these are humans done videos. We've researched the 50 cent army. We've, you know, put a lot of information out there about, about this is a coordinated effort of hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it is impressive. Hundreds of thousands of people that are actively out there on us and other global, you know, social media content platforms, trying to influence people's perception of the CCP through comments. That is an active thing. And you easily got hundreds of my post with 11,000 views on TikTok got flamed by like 50, um, 50 cent army people. If that thing is getting picked up by the 50 cent army, I mean, this is a gargantuan effort, a systemic coordinated effort. And got to give them credit. It's not easy to do this, right? This is very well done on their part, coming full circle. Now we have more information. The FBI has now charged that alleged lowly executive at Zoom. Well, guess what? The guy's in China, so they're not even going to get him. This is just more of a, you know, a, a formality than anything. But they have brought charges against this guy. You got to go to the New York Post to get the photos. Here's the guy. There's some nice little interesting details in here. When Zoom usage exploded during the pandemic, China tightened control. It ordered Zoom employees to shut down what Beijing calls illegal meetings, okay, and accounts within one minute. One minute. Take this down. If it's not done in a minute, you're in violation. If it took more than one minute, it was rated security noncompliant in China could kick Zoom out of China. Now, it goes further. In September of 2019, the CCP blocked Zoom. 
The CCP demands all communications companies censor speech it deems unacceptable. Anyone who fails to comply gets blocked. In September of 2019, CCP blocked Zoom. It allegedly told Zoom that if it wanted to get back into the Chinese market, it had to monitor user communications, censor unacceptable topics within one minute, and give data on around 1 million people in the United States and hand over special access to Zoom systems. Oh, maybe like these alleged encryption keys are there, right? Oh, and route all this data through Chinese servers. Zoom got back into China's market in November. So in less than two months, they capitulated. Allegedly, these 1 million users were quote unquote Chinese users in the United States. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Why doesn't Zoom give us? Who are these 1 million people that they gave all this information to China about? So now Zoom is uh, you know, fully cooperating with this investigation. And, you know, they're just completely appalled by, by what this guy Jin did. Oh, and, and look at this, right? To achieve the shutdown of the video conferences and terminate members' accounts, Jin told Zoom executives that the participants had violated the company's terms of service by distributing child pornography or supporting Islamic State terrorist groups. So Jin lied to the, to the uh, execs at, uh, at Zoom, right? I... I would imagine this testimony has come from the Zoom executives, not Jin, because Jin is still in China. Jin and his cronies created fake email and Zoom accounts to support the bogus claims. Their spokesman, Zoom's spokesman. Zoom is dedicated to free and open exchange of ideas and supports the U.S. government's commitment to protect American interests from foreign influence. You know, it doesn't, that statement doesn't sound like it's being made by an American company, right? Supports the U.S. government's commitment, right? Shouldn't that just be a universal thing? Aren't, like, isn't that the whole point of your company, your co- communication company, to let people do video conferencing? Why is this a U.S. government commitment and not a Zoom commitment? How do you work with the Chinese government? It's what they say or nothing, right? Or they, they literally tell their uh, citizens to freeze and, and businesses to shut down because we got we to gotta show Australia who's boss, right? This is what you're dealing with. It's my way or the highway to the nth degree. And um, how do you have a platform company, which is supposed to, at its core, a platform company is supposed to enable exchange. And if you're a communication platform, you're a content platform, you're a social media platform, you're supposed to enable the exchange of information, content, ideas. Right. And the answer is you can't. These things are in ultimate conflict with one another. You can't operate and truly deliver on that primary value prop of a platform business when you are controlled by a totalitarian communist regime. It's why Applico doesn't work in China or Russia. It's why we've been on Zoom's case for months now saying Zoom can't, you know, is is a security risk. That, you know, if if TikTok is looking at being banned. So should Zoom. Yes, it's an American company by definition, but when you actually look at the business, the product, the data, the people, it's a Chinese company, right? Chinese company, American rapper, as I called it on that TikTok video, which sent the 50 cent army in a tizzy. This is just the beginning, folks. We don't know the extent um, of, of what's really going on. We've just started to look at, you know, truly, you know, uh, scrutinize some of this stuff in the past couple of years here. So that's the China stuff. 
to go back to um, the rest of that that uh, Fox business interview. Let's move on to technology and those companies here in this country. Tech giants, including Google, Facebook, are facing more antitrust lawsuits and increased calls for breakups. So Alex, you know, what do you think is going to happen in 21, 2021 for big tech? Facebook, Google, and Amazon all have real regulatory risk. That's not new news. I think the concerning thing as an investor is that we've seen the CEOs of these big tech monopolies actually don't have the power to fix their problems around censorship and data abuse. And that's a real problem if, if the CEOs are effectively powerless to fix these problems. Okay. Kind of a big statement. Didn't get a follow-up question. Not bothered by it. But let's dig deeper. Facebook and Google and Amazon all have a similar problem. It's it's the same regulatory threat we've talked about on the show for a year and a half now. Uh, platforms hit monopoly scale, monopoly status. They take advantage of who? Producers, suppliers. I've been talking about how Amazon clearly has you know the biggest and the realest regulatory threat here because. You know, they're vertically integrated. They're actively, aggressively competing against third-party sellers. Um, there's a myriad of, of well-documented cases where they've taken the data on third-party sellers and used that unfairly to compete against them with, with Amazon's own product lines or, or, or to cut a, cut a distributor or seller out, go around the seller to the manufacturer and just source directly from the manufacturer. There's so many different examples of, of this you know, and and even Amazon, even Jeff Bezos says, yeah, we have a stated policy on this, right? You can't use third-party seller data unfairly uh, in the launch of our own, you know, white label products. Yet it happens anyway. That is the clearest example of Jeff Jeff Bezos, you know, having a monopoly at just such huge. If, if Jeff Bezos was only running Amazon Marketplace, and he really wanted to stamp that out. It would get stamped out. It wouldn't happen, right? You can you can properly manage your employee base, but now you have tens of thousands of employees that have access to that data. There's no way you can police that many people, and you don't have the boss, right? You need the boss. You want something really done. You want something really done very well. CEO's got to be on it. CEO's got to be on it. Jeff Bezos ain't on it. Jeff Bezos worrying about space and this and that and a bunch of other things, right? Jeff Bezos is not up at night thinking about, oh, what happens if, if our product managers take advantage of another seller's piece of data to, oh, um, you know, make more money for Amazon? Mm, I don't think that's keeping up Jeff Bezos at night. That's a clear cut case. We've been we've been on Amazon for for months, if not years, at this point. Say that's a clear cut. That's a set it and forget it. Bam! You bring that case and say, look, they've got monopoly power. They're taking advantage of sellers. Sellers are customers. The House Judiciary Report, which came out, um, looking at Amazon and, and big tech monopoly stuff, um, actually has a document from Amazon. It might be page two seventy six, but don't quote me on that. Um, that says. From Amazon's actual documents and policies, our sellers are our customers too. Word for word, like they watch the show. Sellers are customers. Producers are customers. It's an it's a platform business fact. It's part of the book. It's a definition. 
uh, platforms of two customers. They take advantage of sellers. Sellers are customers. Antitrust law precedent works for the past 50 years. Bill Barr is a joke. We all know it. DOJ case against Google, big joke. It's all right there. Take advantage of sellers. They're your customers. You're a monopoly. Bam. Antitrust win. Okay. EU is finally onto this. EU is finally onto this. <sighs> Took them like five plus years, but they're onto it. They'll get there another five years. Now, Facebook and Google into the arena. Why do I lump Facebook and Google into the arena with Amazon for having somewhat similar regulatory risk? And here's why. For the past probably four or five years, Facebook and Google have built censorship tools. This isn't just the matchmaking, the algo going berserk, promoting, triggering content like we talked about with Tim Kendall. This is about the censorship, right? This is about kicking creators off the platform, shadow banning them, taking down their posts. They've been building out censorship tools. Same deal. You got tens of thousands of people in each of these companies, Facebook and Google, that have the ability to censor content and blacklist users and shadow ban and whatever, all the different tactics they have to penalize uh, creators. There's too many people. It's too unwieldy of a system to patrol. Just like you got tens of thousands of product people at Amazon, you got tens of thousands of content moderators um, in Facebook, in Google, full-time employees. 1099 contractors that work for like Infor or some other emphasis, some, some other contractor company that are doing content moderation. Anyone with an agenda in those groups can cross the line. And what we've seen now is actually we've seen even more bureaucracy created inside of these companies, right? They've tried to regulate themselves. It doesn't work, right? I mean, rewind to AT&T and Ma Bell, right? You can't regulate yourself. It's, it's showing very clearly. They're not able to regulate themselves. Just like Amazon isn't able to create the Chinese walls. I always get a kick out of it. Not able to create the Chinese walls and keep third-party seller data separate from you know, what you're doing on the one piece side. Same deal. You're not able to provide objectivity to what is offensive and abusive content, right? They have opened Pandora's box. Once you've opened the box, you can't close it. They have crossed the line of objectivity where they have now allowed their personal bias into content censorship. What was meant to really prevent child pornography from originating on the internet and harmful uh, or actively malicious or you know, um, abusive language has now just gone any which way that these tech content platforms uh, decide they want to act more like a publisher than a platform facilitating free speech, right? The latter was to openly exchange that freedom of ideas, okay, and information. Now they're acting more like a publisher. Why can't you have the conversation about where the virus came? I'm not even getting into the politics, right? There's a bunch of religious things that are that are off topic, right? That could be around Islam, could be around Christianity, could be around Judaism. Why are these religious topics not allowed? Uh there are so many nonpartisan things that are being censored, right? Obviously, you get to the partisan stuff. Everyone in this country, you know, you say everyone just kind of loses their ob- objective thinking, which is a big problem. And you've seen that problem objectively in tech companies that where over 95% of the employees donated to one political party. Guess which one? Okay. You're now seeing that actually the most conservative guy. <laughs> the the one at at Facebook that's trying, I think, 
to make his employees or have his employees be more objective is Zuckerberg. And when Zuckerberg does defend any Republicans inside of that company, we've covered this on the show too. They had the um, head of external affairs worked for George Bush and, and, and Facebook employees, you know, literally started to mutiny because this guy wasn't allowed to represent Facebook on external affairs. Zuckerberg came to the guy's defense and what did they do? They leaked the audio of Zuckerberg in, in the town hall meeting. They leaked the audio because they disagreed with the founder and CEO and went after Zuckerberg. I mean, Bush doesn't even like our current president. I mean, it just, you know, it, again, there are no boundaries anymore. It's just cancel culture and cancel culture has taken over the employees at Facebook and Google. So you don't have the subjectivity. Now they have these like committees to figure out what's appropriate and, and inappropriate content. I mean, it's a joke. You now have massive bureaucracy. You have a CEO who's 20 levels removed from the people actually doing the content censorship. Probably got hundreds of employees with an agenda and they can execute that agenda. And there's not one iota of what Zuckerberg can do. And I would lump Sundar into that bucket too. You think if he went to YouTube and said, guys, I mean, like, you can't just take the WHO's word on this. You can't just, you know, hand over, hand this over, the keys to the kingdom. I think he'd actually have a mutiny on his hands. I don't, you know, I, I think they'd do the same thing to what they did to Zuckerberg. And let's face it, this guy does not do well uh, in front of the cameras. We saw him testify multiple times. It's not a pretty picture. And that's what I'm talking about when on, on Fox Business is the CEOs don't have control. CEOs actually, if, even if they issued a directive, it won't get implemented. There's too many people. They're too far removed from it. And they'll probably have a mutiny. Not to mention, look at Twitter. I actually think Twitter's a great example of this. They're not a monopoly. They have flat growth. Q3 2020 compared to Q3 2019. They have 30 million active users in the United States. It's a joke. They're not a monopoly. Um, it's just a pathetic business where they have gone fully off the rails and, and, and honestly gone against the exact value prop of platforms. But it's not because of the CCP controlling them. It's because of weak leadership, a shocking assessment by Elliott Management, their activist investor, to actually leave Jack Dorsey in control of the company. What I've heard is that he has a very weak, Jack has a very weak executive team underneath him. So that doesn't make succession planning easy. And these guys, and by these guys, I mean the Twitter employees, are so rabidly partisan that... Um, if you go against that grain or if you eject the exalted leader that is Jack Dorsey, I think you actually do legitimately have a mutiny um, and bad things could happen. I think Elliot got in there and was like, oh God, what did we just do? They're trapped. They can't do anything. Um, they, can't, they actually can't get rid of the CEO. And the CEO is totally fine with what's happening. It's just sad to see. Next topic. This one, much brighter. Much brighter topic. ADHD trader. That Alex, why do a SPAC if you can do a direct listing? Would a, would a company go to the SPAC route if, if they're afraid their stock won't trade for much? Now, what just has happened, literally, in, in the past few days, is the SEC has actually released um, guidance. Here you go. You can read it. All 40 pages. Fun little light holiday reading for everyone. Uh, they've basically released guidance here 
the the reason why companies would go SPAC over direct listings prior to this guidance was this. In a SPAC, um, what Porch, which we're about to touch on, you can raise money and list your shares with a lot less regulation, with a lot less scrutiny leading up to the IPO. Um, it's an accelerated process, much easier process. You don't have all these banks doing the under, underwriting. It's, 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 a, it's a very different, that SPAC to IPO process, very different process. The direct listing route allows you to get liquidity for your shareholders, but it, it had not allowed you to raise capital at the same time. So you could do a direct listing and now your shares are, are effectively being traded on, say, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, right? You got to do your public filings and you got to do Sarbanes-Oxley and all that kind of stuff. But for your investors, your employees, they now have liquidity. And in the future, you could go do what, you know, what they call a secondary listing, right? You could go do a stock issuance. Um, there's some rules around it and so on and so forth, but you could go raise money. So, you know, and public companies can, they can do a stock issuance. They can, they can sell, you know, issue more stock and, and raise, and raise capital that way. But you can't do a twofer, uh, which is what the traditional IPO process, right? You're, you're raising capital and you're listing shares, but you're listing shares at a predetermined price, right? When you IPO, you're IPOing at a price and those investors are buying in at that at a certain price, right? So you're raising capital at X price and you could go, and then you're going to go public. You're going to list your shares at Y. Bill Gurley, I'm going to show you a video on in a second, saying, you know, this spread, it's, it's arbitrary what, what, what you're listing the price at in the public market. And so you would, you would see is a lot of tech companies leave a lot of money on the table because, uh, you know, they open at 20 bucks a share and it closes at 30 and you just say, what the hell? I, I, I just missed out on 50% value of my company, right? I could have raised all this money at a 50% higher valuation. Like, that's not okay. SPAC is kind of like a hybrid. Uh, I mean, you're, you're raising money. You're getting a faster process to, to, to go public. You, you still have to price you know, the stock. Well, but not really because... You know, you can buy into the SPAC, like uh, Chamath's from Social Capital, his SPACs, right? We covered Open Door going public. We're about to cover Porch. You could buy into that SPAC before, um, before because it's a special purpose acquisition vehicle or company. So it's basically a blank check company. And then they need to go buy Open Door or buy Porch and then, and then do this and then take them public, right? So now they kind of enjoying the two things together. So you could have bought the the SPAC ticker um, for Open Door before the Open Door deal was even announced. You could buy the stock ticker. You could buy that stock before the deal was finalized, but it was announced with Open Door. We covered that, right? You could have gotten it in the 20s and now I think it's in the 30s or something like that. You could have gotten like 50% gain on your money. So you can get into that kind of deal without even having information, just knowing it's open door, right? And without even knowing their financials because it hasn't actually gone public. So there is a little bit more market liquidity there. The the fundraise is, I mean, fluidity when it comes to the share price, right? Um, but you're still raising capital at a predetermined valuation prior to, you know, seeing what where, where the stock gets priced once, once uh, the SPAC is completed and and now, you know, Open Door is effectively publicly trading. Here's Bill Gurley. 
He's super pumped. He's been on this, you know, uh, on this bandwagon for a long time saying that, um, you know, we should be able to raise capital from direct listings. That is what the SEC has effectively issued new guidance on. Um, and I agree with Bill. I think this will be an IPO killer, right? Why would you go the traditional IPO path if you can just do a direct listing and raise money? Uh, the answer is you shouldn't. A potential big win for Silicon Valley today. The SEC approving the New York Stock Exchange's plan to allow companies to raise capital through direct listings. That move was cheered on on Twitter by tech investor Bill Gurley. He joins us now for an exclusive interview. Bill, welcome. We talked to Stacey Cunningham of the NICE last hour. People like you are very excited, though you might, some might wonder if VCs are obviously excited because unlike in an IPO like this, you, you can sell on day one. You don't have to go through a lockup period. Is that part of the reason you're happy? She completely missed the point, by the way. That's totally not the main driver of this. Um, don't know where she gets her talking points from, but maybe she's just trying to team up. I don't, I don't know, but completely missed the ball on that question. First of all, I'm thrilled and thanks for having me on, uh, Scott and Sarah. No, no, the, the, the primary issues with the traditional IPO are twofold and the SEC nailed them both in their, in their draft today, which is that it doesn't provide access to all investors. It's just a select group of people that, that happen to be the biggest customers of the investment bank. And the price and allocation are determined by humans just guessing. Uh, which makes no sense whatsoever in the modern age. So the direct listing gets rid of both of those. I think those are the two primary components. And it's, 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 it's really, really exciting because I think in a lot of ways, this, is a, this will be a permanent change to our capital markets. Though some are wondering if direct listings give companies the ability to circumvent some investor protections that come with the traditional IPO process, potential investor lawsuits. What would you say to individual investors on that? Well, as you may know, the, the Council for Institutional Investors, which is a lobbying group on behalf of the, the hedge funds and the buy side funds that reap the benefits of these exploited IPOs, um, they laid out all those arguments in their in their fight with the SEC to try and block this innovation that Stacy and the NYSC are bringing forward. And if you take the time, and I would encourage you, it's not that long to read through what the SEC wrote this morning, they shut all those points down and said, it's much more critical to have a fair and unbiased process um, and, 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 and embrace those two key points I made. Let's provide open access to anybody. In the future, you'll be able to go on Robinhood, and if you want to participate in an IPO, you can. Um, and then let's not let these intermediaries and gatekeepers hand allocate who gets this underpriced stock. Oh, uh, open access to everybody. You know, kind of goes back to our point on um, hmm, tech censorship from content platform monopolies. Bill Gurley, being a huge platform investor, he understands value prop of platforms probably almost better than anyone. He's from Benchmark, a uh, big VC firm now, you know, um, big investors in Snapchat, which is on fire these days and, and others. Um, but uh, anyway, let's, let's listen to what else he has to say. Unfortunately, have been available order matching systems for, for over 20 years. But now they're going to be part of the IPO process, which, by the way, is the exact same way every corporate bond has been priced for years. And so those liability questions would apply there. Corporate bonds like market access and trade web, both in Plat, the 
a platform ETF created by Wisdom Tree with with uh, Applico's help. Market access being on fire. It's a marketplace for bond trading, right? Uh, transparency, liquidity. You know, you used to have bond brokers, right? You know, you had these bond trading desks, and and everyone was kind of calling around and pricing the bonds and. Damn, marketplace brings that transparency, brings that openness, uh, which is what platforms are supposed to do. That's what he's getting at. Other thing interesting in, in this is why was this the New York Stock Exchange? Where was NASDAQ on this? Okay. NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, big competitors. The NASDAQ has kind of built its name and its reputation as 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 NASDAQ in the you know early 2000s. They were the ones getting all the tech IPOs, right? They kind of historically have had that tech-friendly aura to them. New York Stock Exchange has been making uh, concerted efforts with a lot of success, and they've gotten a number of recent big tech IPOs to happen on New York Stock Exchange, not NASDAQ. But it's a constant battle between the two of them. NASDAQ, I think, just, you know, big loss here for NASDAQ, just in the eyes of future tech IPOs, right? The New York Stock Exchange just... They're going to be out in front of this. They're going to be out in front of having the best kind of direct listing IPO process. They got the SEC to approve this uh, from a regulatory standpoint. They're paving the way. Big win for the New York Stock Exchange. Very odd to see, you know, why Nasdaq here was was kind of trailing on this. All right, porch. I've been looking into this company, porch. They just IPO'd. SPAC IPO, raising $322 million. It, this is a handy competitor. Uh, an Angie's List competitor. Angie's List owns Home Advisor, Angie's List, and Handy. All kind of controlled by IAC, Barry Diller, Expedia, Match Group. Guy gets marketplaces, right? Know the Handy guys, full disclosure. O'Sheen, blurb the back of our book. What do they say about our book? Machine. Oh. Uh, two-sided marketplaces or platforms are tough to start and scale. Modern Monopolies brilliantly reveals the secrets of the startups that are scaling platform businesses. A must-read for any serious entrepreneur or investor, as well as anyone interested in innovation. Whoa. Thank you, Oshin. Oshin is now Chief Product Officer at Angie's List and was co-founder and CEO of Handy. Handy was always way bigger than Porch. And, you know, I'd, I'd kind of seen Porch from afar. And what was interesting about Porch is they have always had this really early uh, partnership with Lowe's, you know, the Home Depot competitor, big home improvement retailer, massive company. So let's let's talk about Porch's fundraising history. Okay, Lowe's led their Series A. Actually, took the whole thing. Took the whole thing. So that was twenty seven, twenty eight. Then they raised another sixty five million dollars in early twenty fifteen which I guess valued the company at $500 million. At that time, they said they had 350 employees. It's a marketplace to connect handymen and you know different kind of home improvement contractors with customers, right? So the Lowe's partnership makes a lot of sense. So Lowe's was saying, hey, we're going to come in on this. They reinvested in, in the $65 million round. Lowe's is saying, hey, we can refer people to use Porch, I'm sure they could get some kind of revenue share on that, right? I mean, they're, you know, it's kind of like IKEA buying TaskRabbit, but TaskRabbit was really suffering. Your retailer, people need uh, labor and services done to use the products that you're selling. Great. How can we have a partner? Strategically, it makes a lot of sense, right? Big nut to lead that $26 million round. That's, that was kind of 
you know, a little peculiar, peculiar, but okay, whatever. Then they, they, they stay involved in, in the subsequent round, you know, the $65 million round. So that was all 2015. They don't raise equity. Uh, you know, at that point with that 65 million, they had a post money valuation of looks like $500 million, right? Then they raised debt in 2017. They raised all this money back in 2015, and then they didn't really raise any other money. Then in 2019, if you read through their documents here, by the way, are very slim on information. You just look. For Lowe's. During 2019, Porch did not grant any equity awards to Mr. Ehrlichman. That's the CEO co-founder. In May of 2019, Matt, CEO, purchased 16 million shares of Porch from Lowe's at a price of 25 cents per share which was lower than their most recent 409A. 409A is uh, like a fair market valuation that you get when you want to value options in your shares, right? So they got this valuation, which I think was bringing in their their valuation at like $2 a share was what, you know, the 409A uh, firm, they do these valuations for a living. That's literally what they do. Valued them at roughly $2 a share. The CEO buys it from Lowe's at one-eighth of that. And Lowe's in the Series A got around a little over 17 million shares. Okay? Series A. They did the whole nut. They took the whole thing. That was September of 2014. They raised $27, $28 million at what is apparently under a $100 million valuation. Okay? So Lowe's got, let's say, a third of the company, roughly, in uh, in ownership. Seventeen million, a little over seventeen million shares. Now Porch raises sixty five million dollars at about a five hundred million dollar valuation. Five months later, in January of twenty fifteen. What? Let's say Lowe's has twenty million shares. Let's just say they sell sixteen million of them to Matt. For like $4 million in change. Okay. This is what Apple got in trouble for like 10 years ago. You can't sell shares at under fair market value. That, you know, you're actually, someone's got to pay for that value. So then Porch was required to recognize a compensation expense in the aggregate amount of $33 million uh, with respect to Mr. Ehrlichman, our CEO's share purchase from Lowe's. This amount is being excluded from the 2019 summary compensation table. Why would you exclude that? You don't think Porch knew what was going on with this? You had, you know, easily their largest investor, Lowe's, selling, call call it, four-fifths of their stock to the CEO at easily one-eighth or possibly less of the fair market value, and by the way, these valuations, these 409As, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's, hey, I think the company is worth this. You know, there, there's analysis done, but it's, it's, 
whatever the 409A is, the actual value, like whatever you would be getting on the market, is going to be it's going to be more. Right. The whole idea is that you can issue it to your employees and you share price and this kind of stuff. And so it's not it's not a, a truly vetted valuation, right? There's a lot of ambiguity that goes into that. So the point is this guy is buying them at, at let's say an eighth of what the 49A is, right? And if the 49A is undervalued and the 49A should be four bucks a share, and the guy's buying them at 25 cents a share. It's what is going on, right? It's very weird. 16 million shares. You know, they go on to talk about what this chief revenue officer is, right? This Matthew Neagle guy, what he's getting, right? And it's like 80,000 shares, 100,000 shares. This guy bought 16 million shares at dirt cheap price. Then he takes the company public basically a year later through a SPAC. Funded by the seed investor. Now, those 16 million shares, which he bought, he has other... um stock issuances and then you know he has probably you know like here you can see his you know um his other vesting 600,000 shares 600,000 shares 3 million shares like did Lowe's just write this thing off and say yeah that we think this business is done uh, i mean why would Lowe's do that right Lowe's saying yeah we're we're we want out of this give us our 4 million dollars we're going to we're going to take a 25 million dollar write off for this thing Okay, sure. I mean, it's lows. They're massive. This is like a rounding error to them. But okay, yeah, we'll take the four million bucks. We'll hold on to uh, a fifth of our position in the business, and um, yada yada yada. Oh, okay. Now, what is Porch stock price? Basically, it came out at around fifteen bucks a share. You want to know the math? Want to know the math on that? Fifteen times sixteen million. Fifteen bucks a share. Sixteen million shares. The guy bought four million dollars. Is two hundred forty million dollars. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, is the business doing well? That's what I mean, right? Has has Matt built a great business? Ooh, okay. Let's look at a comparable called Angie's List. Angie stock. Thirteen fifty six and a half billion dollar market cap. Call it one point five billion dollars revenue. What is that in GMV? Marketplace again, GMV. This guy is saying Angesus will do around $46 billion in requested GMV, right? So, hey, I need this thing serviced, um, you know, or hey, I need this job done. Serviced, so the actual GMV performed $28 billion, right? Of that, saying 5% overall take rate is, um, you know, how they get to $1.5 billion in revenue. The move with Handy. I thought there's a great acquisition of Handy. Handy, you know, would say, hey, you want your house cleaned? It's going to be, they, they, it's, it's commoditized service. We go very deep into the idea of commoditized and uncommoditized services in the book, right? Um, Uber, commoditized service marketplace. Handy, commoditized service marketplace. Home Advisor, Angie's List, non-commoditized service marketplace. What does that mean? doesn't mean that the business is commoditized or not. What it means is that the service being exchanged is commoditized. So Airbnb, non-commoditized, right? I have a house that could have hundreds of different features or attributes that would determine the value of, of that service, right? Or that experience, or that house. Not commoditized. When you have a service that is, 
you know, has only a handful of real attributes that determine the value of that service, you can start to think about the services being, or, or and this applies for product marketplaces too, by the way, you know, just think new versus used product marketplaces where, you know, how do you set the price of a used product? Is, is the platform setting the price or is the producer setting the price? That's kind of the main thing here. Angie's List and Home Advisor, the producer sets the price. TaskRabbit's big problem was that they would let, for home cleaning services, which are commoditized, they would let the home cleaner set the price. So now you're looking at like, oh, well, you know, this person's 20 bucks an hour. This person's 15. Let me go read their reviews. What, what star rating do they have? No one wants to do that. It's a pain, right? The platform, if you're facilitating a service or a product which is commoditized, you should take that friction out of the transaction and fix the price. The platform should be the price setter because you're going to reduce friction. That's actually what this guy's slides are saying here. There's $18 billion in requested GMV that isn't serviced. This slack is expected to be reduced due to fixed price services, right? You can reduce friction by fixing the price because what you're going to say to the customer is, hey, 30 bucks an hour, you're going to get your home cleaned. I'm going to match you to a producer, to a 1099, you know, home cleaner. But we, the platform, are going to ensure that home cleaner does a great job, right? We are going to extract away all that analysis of saying, well, 20 bucks, 15 bucks, how many star reviews, who had better reviews? No one wants to do that. Just, I want to book it and who wants to come clean it? And the platform should facilitate that. The platform should obfuscate all of that friction away from the consumer and you're going to get more transactions. So you can't do that with every um, with every type of uh, model because right you could have some services that you can't com- treat as a commoditized service, um, but you know you uh, you do have a bunch that you can right. That's where Handy really shined, and and part of the acquisition here, um, and now Oshin is chief product officer at. Uh, Angie's list, right? You know, uh, looking across all the businesses and trying to bring these fixed pricing models into the rest of what Angie's list and Home Advisor is doing. Great strategy. Okay, what's Porch doing? Twenty-eight billion dollars serviced across Angie's list, Home Advisor, and Handy. Well, I mean, Porch's stock price puts it at one point two five billion dollars. Basically, a fifth of Angie's list. So, so, <laughs> how much GMV is Porch doing? How much revenue is Porch doing? Great question. We don't know GMV. Big red flag. Like Lyft not telling me GMV. Big red flag. Lots of ways you can manipulate revenue numbers. Porch is doing $70 million in the first six months of 2020 which is down from what they were doing in the prior period in 2019. Not flat, it's actually down. Um, We'll see where their back half of the years come in, but uh, they haven't reported that. Their reporting is super wonky. Look at this number. Okay, usually on these financials, you know, it says numbers are in thousands, right? So when I'm looking at this, I, you know, I know you got to add three more zeros on, okay? Those that annotation isn't on these slides. They had nine hundred thousand dollars in cash at the end of September 2020. What kind of joke company is this? You have nine hundred thousand dollars in cash. You're supposed to be having a billion dollar market cap. 
doesn't make any sense. Okay. And by the way, in this document, this is their uh, this is their 10Q. They don't even list revenue. It's not even on here. Re- revenue is not even in this document. Okay. You got to go to this other document, which, by the way, I couldn't even find on Porch's website. Found it from another article, which was talking about Porch. This is their S4. This document says that they have $77.5 million in revenue for 2019. The whole, the whole year. Sorry, I even misquoted that earlier. The whole year, $76 million in revenue. $32 million in the first six months of 2020. This is a, a billion dollar company. Come on, come on, gang. I mean, if you're doing $100 million in revenue and you're growing at like two, three X a year, Roblox, anyone? Roblox? DoorDash, three Xing? Don't know if it's sustainable, but three Xing? These guys went from 54 million in revenue to 77 from 2018 to 2019. Okay, 50% growth, sure. 2020, they're actually down compared to the same period prior year. We don't know where they'll come out in, in, in the last six months here, but I do know they had $900,000 in cash at the end of September. I mean, what are these numbers? And by the way, it's not like all this revenue is GMV. They don't mention anything about GMV. They've acquired a bunch of different companies, by the way, along, along the way, like they acquired a moving company. Okay, they do moves. A lot of this revenue... I think is actually not take rate revenue. I actually think a lot of this revenue is full rack rate price for the service. So when you look at these total costs and expenses, uh, I mean, look at this. On $32 million in revenue, first six months of 2020, they're losing $24 million. They have $50 million in costs for $32 million of expenses. It's bonkers. It just doesn't add up. And I mean, look at their interest expense. They're paying $6 million in interest expense on $32 million of revenue. This company should be bankrupt. That's probably why I'm guessing Lowe's sold their shares off in a fire sale to this guy, Matt, and then somehow a SPAC to give him $322 million on a company. That hasn't broken $100 million in revenue and best case scenario is growing at 50% year over year revenue. And by the way, it's not like they have $500 million in GMV. It's not like this $77 million in revenue is, you know, a 10 or 15% take rate or 5% take rate, which would Angie's list half. It's, it's much lower because, because they have that non-commoditized model. It's not like $77 million is 10% of a million GMV. That's not what's going on with this company. I think they got a lot of linear revenue in here, right? Where where I'm paying $100 for the job and I'm paying the contractor 80 bucks and I'm making my margin, but they're booking that 100 bucks as revenue. They don't clearly break that out, but you kind of need to read between the lines, look at their acquisitions and have a level of familiarity for how the company runs. This isn't all GMV. If it was GMV, and if they did have $500 million in GMV, I guarantee you they'd be talking about it. They don't have $500 million in GMV, 
They're not breaking it out. They're not being transparent. Big red flag. They don't. It doesn't add up. Doesn't add up. I would not touch this company. I don't even know which company I despise more. Wish or Porch. It's close. It's close. I don't know. I wouldn't, I would not touch either of these companies. Oh my God. I mean, and what, the CEO is now making $200 million in a year because he's buying out low. It just, it stinks. It stinks. So, so, so it's, it, there's so much funny business and so much lack of transparency. I can see why they, I can see why porch took the back. Yikes. Yikes. Oh my God. Look at, look at, look, look at this. I mean, look at these businesses they bought. Go Google these. Hire a helper. Service. Inspection support. Apparently that one's pretty good. Hire a helper. That's like, you know, moving your stuff in and out of a home. Like a moving company. What are they competing with? United Band Group now. And I mean, and I think it's very linear. So another data point. They got PPP money. They had 400 employees at the time of PPP. Remember back in that raise in like 2015, they had 350 employees. They've gone up, they've gone down, they've gone down 200 employees, this and that. They're all over the place. 400 employees, 400 employees. Mm, It just, none of it adds up. None of the numbers add up. I would just just stay far, far away. Okay. That's it. Marathon, winner take all episode. We're done. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.